This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Paul Grain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Vampire the Masquerade PCs as Knights Black Agents Bad Guys. The Oddest Movie Star. Food Book Hut. And The 13 Day King. Although most Renaissance fairs aren't happening in 2020, you can still bring all the excitement to your table. Minus the jousting and roast turkey legs. During the month of September, our friends at Atlas Games are offering their card game Renfair at 40% off with code Pantaloons. In Renfair, you play characters who want to have the best historically accurate costume at the fair but lack the funds to do it. Earn coins by competing challenges, then buy choice items for your own costume. Thwart your opponents by playing clashing garment items on them. Short pantaloons and a sequined halter top? Egad! Stackable transparent costume cards let you see your character's outfit and your points too. Renfair plays two to four people ages 13 plus in about an hour. Learn more about Renfair or order your copy at atlas-games.com slash Renfair. That's fair with an E. Hip, hip, huzzah! The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures tell us that we're once more uh, in that most standard, that most opening of huts, the gaming hut. And we're uh, sitting with our beautiful parquet floor. We're looking at uh, Peter Frampton coming alive. But wait a minute, there's a couple of puncture wounds on, on Peter Frampton's neck. But he's still... With this kind of, I think he's he's gone dead and come alive. It's a double album, after all. Double album. First as a protagonist and then as an antagonist. Because beloved patron backer Adam Grotejohn would like to know, how do you turn your Vampire the Masquerade player characters into the antagonists in a Knight's Black Agents game? And so I, I would guess the obvious first step is to first play Vampire and then play Knight's Black Agents. And the second step, Ken, I'm going to hazard a guess, is to somehow in the interim make your vampire characters go way up in status so they can be atop mm-hmm. a conspiramid yeah. instead of being the uh, low-level mooks at the bottom of it, as you often are, at least to begin with, in Vampire the Masquerade. Yeah, I think that turning your actual player characters into uh, the main antagonist, as opposed to just into antagonists, that does require a bit of creative interpolation, because unless you're running a Vampire the Masquerade game, and the new Vampire the Masquerade does begin with the potential for your characters to become, not in immediate order, but fairly rapidly, the top dogs, at least in their city, because the whole uh, conception of the new vampire universe is that uh, the beckoning has been calling all the elders who used to interfere with your political dreams away to uh, fight in the in the final war over Cain and the Methuselahs. And so uh, there's a power vacuum at the top. And so you are but one of the factions angling to be raised to the uh, conditional, at least, status of Prince of, you know, Detroit or wherever it is that you're right. running your game. And, and that's a clever design choice because the promise of playing a vampire uh, traditionally has then led to, oh, but wait a minute, we're the weak, stupid beginning vampires, and uh, maybe if we play for six years, we'll get to the top, but 
nobody plays anything for six years anymore. We want to be cool now. So exactly it's smart that that was done, even without the need to then turn them into a conspiracy. Yeah. So the so the possibility exists at least that locally your vampires could have become the top dog in a normal Vampire the Masquerade campaign. Now, probably you're not going to have ascended to the top of the Camarilla, but what is very possible is that your characters can have worked themselves into uh, positions of sort of key movers and shakers, uh, rising stars, if you will, within the Camarilla. The Camarilla being, for those who have uh, not been Vampire the Masquerade heads, uh, the global conspiracy of vampires primarily centered in Europe, but uh, scattered all over the world. There are, of course, uh, a million other factions. I'm hideously oversimplifying this, but the Camarilla is basically your big vampire conspiracy. And the uh, the pyramid is, is sketched, I don't want to say vaguely mapped, but it's sketched in the source material. And certainly there's enough give in it that your vampires, uh, rising as they did to become Prince of Detroit or Prince of uh, Brussels, have now become the uh, spear point of the Camarilla, at least as pointed at uh, the player characters. And player characters, of course, can come into it as, uh, and Nice Black Agents player characters always do, just as uh, people who have been doing tasks for one or another vampire and discovered the nature of their employer, or... Uh, your nice black agent's character can have been recruited as a false flag by another vampire. So they're still doing the bidding of vampires. They just don't know it. If you want to expand your, your remit, uh, even further, obviously there's, you know, uh, werewolves and magi and whatnot else in the world of darkness, but put a pin in that. Uh, the other big power player in the new Vampire the Masquerade con- continuity is the Second Inquisition, which is the network of A-list spy agencies who, as a result of the breaking down of privacy and the increase of surveillance in the world after 9-11, have discovered, uh, oh, right, these guys with their Swiss bank accounts that have been there for 300 years and their human trafficking rings aren't. Uh, narco-terrorists or regular terrorists, they're vampire terrorists. And uh, it then begins that as an informal basis, because they certainly don't want vampire civil rights groups rising up and interfering with uh, the death squad activity. Because that would turn into true blood and nobody wants that. Turns into true blood and certainly nobody wants that. Possibly not even Anna Paquin at this stage. But a informal arrangement between various national intelligence agencies, backed up by the Vatican, of course, has launched the second inquisition of cool super spies to go kill vampires. And your agents, your players and nice black agents could simply be members of the second inquisition. That could be how they come up. So one of you is a member of the Brazilian elite police who have been merrily hunting vampires for 20 years and only recently discovered everyone else was. Uh, you could be part of the um, uh, elite uh, CIA program that has uh, existed to hunt out vampires. You could be, you know, former um, uh, uh, GRU people or even current GRU people, the Russians being sort of in and out of uh, the Second Inquisition as suits them. Uh, good old Jesuit vampire hunters, a lovely uh, thing for um, uh, Order X, I believe it's called. And just as a as a side note, one of the things that I wanted to happen that uh, Pelgrane wanted to happen, I guess, a little less than I, would have been that the official Second Inquisition supplement uh, for the New World of Darkness would have been a Knights Black Agents book. 
and you would have been able to literally stat up your uh, Vampire the Masquerade player characters as foes in a uh, Knights Black Agents context and then go hunt them. And I thought that would have been a lovely career ornament for me, but uh, Pelgrim didn't want to pay license fees to the World of Darkness, and I guess that makes logical sense. Yes, that that would be the entire profit margin. <laughs> right, yes. <laughs> so, project. I don't know the entire profit margin, but I do, I do see the argument. But if you're worried that you are violating the designer's intent by playing uh, Knights Black Agents against your Vampire the Masquerade player characters, fear not, that was literally the designer's intent. You're fulfilling the <laughs> designer's thwarted uh, intent. Right. So, uh, there'd be two ways that this could happen. One is that you uh, have already run your Ma- Vampire the Masquerade game and get the smart idea to uh, have the uh, players then combat their previous uh, set of characters. The other then, however, would be to set up, even in the mas- Masquerade part of this, what would then happen in the Knights Black Agents part. And so how would you go about uh, laying pipe for that in the premise of your uh, masquerade game. If you're laying pipe to get ready, the, I mean, the, basically the two things you need to do are grease the ascent of your player characters, your vampire player characters to a point where they'll be worthy targets of a, a future Knights Black Agents team. And second, obviously, make the vampire game, perhaps don't center it on the second inquisition, but make them a presence, make them a, a thing not even necessarily to worry about. Maybe you think, oh, I'll manipulate them into killing off my rivals uh, for Princeton of uh, Brussels or Detroit and uh, will be able to, uh, to to rise in power that way. Or they're, a, they're sort of a, a presence. There's maybe one adventure where you fight uh, Second Inquisition guys and escape barely with your with your own life and uh, lets everyone know that these are the real deal, thus sort of seeding the hint that when you get to play them, it'll be super boss. And basically just, you know, leave yourself imaginative running room in a Vampire the Masquerade game for a Knights Black Agents or Second Inquisition game to enter. Don't close it all off. Don't make your position so recondite. Let, you know, you're, you're battling uh, hermetic vampires from uh, House Tremere over mystical artifacts and ignoring the mortal world. That could be fun if you then are like, but what was, you know, what was the Belgian police up to while we were all, you know, uh, searching for fragments of the, you know, dark grail or whatever. But I think it's, it's more satisfying if you're foreshadowing uh, the existence of human vampire hunters who happen to also be badass super spies. And do you go as far as to, introduce particular game master characters who can then be on offer to the players to uh, take over in Knights Black Agents? I feel like that uh, constrains the players too much. I think that certainly you want to present non-player character inquisitors or non-player character hunters of whatever sort, because you always want to personalize the antagonists. And if the player characters, you know, if the players really, really fall in love with a villain, as players often do, I think it, you know, they will be uh, so eager to kill them that you can make that that villain's death an inciting incident for the Knights Black Agents rather than, you know, you know, you oh, we love Commander Stark. He was such a, a bad guy. He hunted us so mercilessly. Uh, he was so cunning and, 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 uh, and mean and prejudiced against vampires, and we hated him. And then having the players then, oh, I'm going to play Commander Stark. The trouble is, it's like playing Batman. You, you worry either you're like, oh, I can't do 
everything because suddenly I'm not the GM and I don't have all the advantages the GM gave Commander Stark. Or you ruin the other player's idea of Commander Stark because you do things that they're like, well, that wouldn't really happen. We've established, you know, that Commander Stark um, uh, uh, saves little uh, brown-haired orphans. He doesn't, uh, you know, use them He's as He's lost all of his practice. ethics since he became a, a player character. A player character. He's it's a weasel weird. now. Yeah. And so I feel like, you know, to the extent you've created a, a, a living, breathing, vibrant antagonist in a Knights Black Agents game, that's almost the exact extent to which you've shut off the possibility of playing uh, that character as a protagonist, as a player character anyway, in uh, Nice Black Agents. I think that they could even stay an NPC. They could be the the M or the voice on the tape that gives you your missions. Your first mission could be find out what happened to Commander Stark. He disappeared on his last, you know, mission into Vienna to, you know, find out if there's r- these rumors that vampires can use magic or true or whatever. And, and that can set you up. You can sort of piggyback off the last adventure of your vampire game into the first adventure of your NBA game. So you use the a, a crime that you know that the player characters in Masquerade committed, mm-hmm. and uh, now their characters have to sort of uh, skirting, as we've discussed previously, firewalling their uh, player knowledge, find a credible way to pick up all of the clues that they doubtless left strewn all about because all about the landscape they, yeah. because they weren't game master characters they were player characters yeah another possibility is that you can run both games you know in series if you have remarkably firewally players and a lot of time uh you begin running vampire the masquerade and set up you know what your world of darkness looks like and at the same time begin a nice black agents game also set in the world of darkness and then as your players rise to power against the Camarilla, perhaps your players are playing Anarch vampires who are rebels against the Camarilla. Brr, we don't like them. We're cool hipster vampires. Um, and they're rising up against the Camarilla. You can have your nice black agents characters also hunting the Camarilla. And then the two sets of player characters are operating strategically in tandem, even though they probably aren't you know, passing notes and, uh, you know, holy water to each other. It's America and Russia versus uh, Nazi Germany. It's, it's exactly. only going to last so long. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, uh, you get, you know, the, the, the patent alternative at the end where, you know, they go to war and you can have the players, you know, roll off or you can have half of them play their NBA characters and half of them play their vampire characters um, and, you know, run a big old battle in whichever game system you have enjoyed the battles in the most. Just make sure that as you've established, it's not going to be a walkover one for the other, because if that's the climax of your game is when, you know, Titans clash, it should be the climax. It shouldn't be. And then they filled the room with uh, volatilized garlic and we all died. The end. Or, you know, yeah. uh, or and they fought us at two. noon in a building with a flammable roof. Well, that was a mistake for everyone, wasn't it? Now, if I were to do this, I would be tempted to wall off the whole rest of the world of darkness, uh, because I think once you get, for example, wizards in there. Uh, it suddenly turns into Inception mm-hmm. and it goes a whole other direction. And uh, although, of course, Masquerade is built to have all those other things also kind of in the corners if you're playing vampire rather than mm-hmm. the whole thing, I would think that, you know, maybe werewolves, they'd be okay. But the rest of the, uh, you know, the changelings, that would be very difficult to fit into the mood of an espionage game. Uh, how much of the... Uh, the full world of darkness continuity would you be inclined to draw on? I think if, in, if I were running it in either of the ways that we've talked about, I would be tempted 
I probably would leave human magi out of it because my very favorite clan is Tremere. It would be very hard for me to stop myself from using vampires who are doing magic as part of the, the whole concept. And of course, vampires have done magic since the beginning of vampire talk. I, I think that maybe having one, you know, fae from the changeling world as a, as a mysterious NPC, you know, your deep throat, perhaps even the inciting incident is, is that this guy is, you know, uh, advancing some agenda of the, of the shadow courts by, um, uh, offering you leads against the Camarilla, whatever it happens to be. I think maybe having one or two sort of reminders. Oh, right. This is the world of darkness makes it more fun and flavorful, at least for players who, who care about it than completely firewalling it. But no, you wouldn't be taking a hard left and saying, now we're going to fight the, you know, you know, the virtual adepts. And it's like, oh my good lord, if I wanted to play, you know, cyberpunk, I'd be playing cyberpunk. What I want to do is, is run around and shoot vampires. But, you know, certainly I feel like if player characters are getting overconfident, you know, a quick trip to the forests to meet the werewolves will become a salutary educational opportunity for them. Uh, well, speaking of hard lefts, I think it's time for us to turn a hard left because I see another hut on the horizon and it's a hut that looks a lot like a, a building that i haven't been into it for a while so uh, let's uh, travel through this exciting commercial message and see what lies on the other side Hey, 13th Age Adventurers! Whether your one unique thing is a robot hand or a deck of many futures. Whether you're friends with the Diabolist or frenemies with the Great Gold Worm. All are eventually drawn to one dark lure. The Underworld! The vast and mysterious realms that lie beneath the Dragon Empire. Deep within the Underworld lie adventure and treasure as well as disaster and death. But what is reward without risk? With the book of the Underworld designer Gareth Ryder Hanrahan reveals the Underworld secrets for 13th Age, including... The lands of the Underworld, the Underland, the kingdoms of the Hollow Realms, and what lies within the deeps. The mighty dwarven city of Forge. The domains of the Silverfolk Elves. The threats of Malice, the Drowfort. And the four kingdoms of the Mechanical Sun. Forgotten Gods, the Gnome Academy of Magic, Monsters, Magic Treasure, and more. For for a limited time, get 10% off in print or PDF at the Pelgrain store with a voucher code STUFFWORLD. You will need the extra gold pieces for ropes and pulleys. That's the Book of the Underworld for 13th Age, voucher code STUFFWORLD at PelgrainPress.com. The whir of the projector, the smoke coiling past the beam, the whatever that is on the floor underneath our feet. Welcome us once more to the center seats of the cinema hut. And in the cinema hut, because we can't watch movies made now, we're watching movies from the past, or more specifically, Robin, we're watching movie stars from the past, because today we're talking about the question, the perennial question that happens whenever cinephiles get together, who was the oddest major movie star? And I don't think that we're counting like Tom Cruise. Because he is odd. He is a major movie star. <laughs> right. He makes perfect sense as a movie star. Yeah. And and we're not even talking about movie stars whose oddness is just being a gigantic old diva. Because all actors are odd. And certainly rich, powerful actors get to be even odder. But, you know, not making eye contact with J-Lo is not necessarily, 
in the category we're talking about, or even Humphrey Bogart's erotomania is not really on point, or even the oddness of Hedy Lamar actually contributing to society by helping to invent uh, frequency hopping. Yes. That's odd for a movie star, but it's not odd, odd, right? Yes. It's really <laughs> weird that this person was a major movie star for many years and uh, wouldn't possibly, and wouldn't have been before they were stars, wouldn't be stars today. But who is the one where you look at their filmography and go, that was an enormous giant star. And I think oh, right. yeah, we okay. also want to leave out sort of the, the gimmick stars of the classic Hollywood era, like Rin Tin Tin. Uh, it is weird that a dog was a major movie star, but it's not inexplicable because mm -hmm. a good boy. People and love dogs. I, I think similarly, unless you've chosen one of these people, in which case <laughs> we will go back and cut this bit out. Uh, I think that uh, Sonia Henney and uh, Esther Williams, you know, the, the skating and swimming stars. Right. You're, you're, you're Johnny Weissmuller's. And, and Johnny Weissmuller. I, I think that's another example of someone. A, a if, if you see any of the early Tarzan movies, you don't go, oh, why was he a big movie star? It's perfectly evident. And yeah. Uh, he was associated with one role. So right, someone yeah. who is, uh, you know, indelibly known for one particular thing, that's that's not odd. Right. And so, uh, Ken, do you want to hit me with yours uh, first and we'll see how similar it is to mine? I mean, I think that if you're sort of saying it, it's a weird choice that someone and I didn't pick, you know, like you say, one offs. Um, but I think that it's really odd that Audie Murphy, who won the Medal of Honor who was one of the most decorated American soldiers ever also became a, not just a one-off. Oh, we'll put Audie Murphy in a movie. It'll be good for box office. He had like a multi-decade career as a movie star. And quite frankly, in uh quiet American, at least acted the pants off everyone else in the film. I say Audie Murphy. It's, it's an, it's, it's not odd in the sense that when you see him on screen, you're not going, well, that's weird. But when you see him on screen and remember, He's killed more Germans than there are people in this movie production. That's a little weird to me. Robin? Yes, it's, it's hard to think of a, a, a similar situation where someone... I mean, there's certainly all the time actors arise from other fields, most notably music, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes from sports. But uh, someone who was a real-life hero and then became a, a movie star. And th the other thing about Murphy is that he, um, although he is good in certain things... He is not someone who has that sort of memorable star persona where you immediately think, oh, well, these are his qualities as a as an actor. And this is what, uh, you know, carries him from movie to movie. And these are the things that the writers write around. Or, or this is why that you would yeah. cast him in this, that he had lead roles, but he did not have that classic persona of a Tom Cruise or a Humphrey Bogart or something that was or Cary Grant who had, you know, this very clear iconographic quality that you had to know yeah. his backstory in order to know why you cared about him and why uh, he was a star. And like other people who were stars for a while, but have been forgotten, uh, like Warren William, for example, he did not wind up having a film that was enough of a classic that he's really known today outside of uh, film buff circles. And you would right. be going down the list pretty uh, far before you found somebody who 
knew he, who he was who wasn't a big film buff, for example. Right, yeah. Or a big World War II buff, I guess, would also know uh, Audie Murphy's career. But he, he's not like someone like, like Harrison Ford, who begins as a set carpenter, and then, oh, right, of course he's in movies, he's Harrison Ford. What? Why were we ever letting him build things? It's very much a... He does what actors are supposed to do and not, and what movie stars, I guess, are never supposed to do, which is sort of submerge his personality in the role to a very large degree. He's sort of like a, almost uh, the character actor and his character is having no character, right? Right. Uh, well, my choice definitely has that star persona, has those qualities that are very uh, memorable that make them inimitable. But also now in retrospect, when you uh, look back at this person and this person was a major film star in our conscious movie-going lifetimes, uh, when you look at his early 70s output, for example, uh, I, certainly I think Charles Bronson? <laughs> he, he was a gigantic box office draw for nearly a decade. Uh, this, And by the time he was a star, he was beginning his already chiseled visage, his very distinctive character actor looks were already beginning to age out uh, and in fact, he had his biggest hit when he was 52 years old yep. with uh, with Death Wish. My my dad's joke about Death Wish was um, that it was unrealistic because muggers would approach Charles Bronson. Uh, first of all, assuming a mugger would ever approach Charles Bronson. But second of all, they would say, oh, I'm sorry, sir. You've already been served and go on to the next guy. <laughs> yes. So it does make sense that there would be people with a, a, a actors with tough guy persona. We have them now. We have them before. Right. Uh, the closest, I think, analog to Bronson now would be Danny Trejo. But of course, Danny Trejo is a character actor. He's right. not the lead in hit film after hit film. Charles Bronson is born Charles Buczynski. And although he is frequently and believably cast as a Native American, he is Lithuanian. And uh, during the House Un-American Activities uh, Committee, his agent says, maybe you should change your name from that Russian-sounding Buczynski. That's when he became uh, Charles Bronson. And he's one of these people who sort of kicks around for a long time before he becomes a star uh, late in life. Uh, he was a, he had a short, he had a TV series for a couple of seasons called Man with a Camera. <laughs> this, this was, this was in, uh, the, the equivalent period to now when there was suddenly a lot of time to fill and no one had the vaguest idea how to fill it. <laughs> so this is from 58 to 60. And, uh, if you follow the long tail, to some lesser known streaming services. You can find Man with a Camera. And he is a two-fisted, occasionally gun-toting New York photojournalist who, who winds up solving crimes. Uh, like so you do. You could definitely turn it into a, a gumshoe one-to-one. But even then, he's a younger guy, but his uh, sort of uh, weird diction and cadence. Uh, he was brought up in uh, extreme poverty in, in rural Pennsylvania and has sort of a Philly accent. And he kind of stumbles on his words and you do kind of feel for him because he's struggling to deliver a line reading that hits the right emphasis, but often it kind of doesn't. And I'm not saying he's a bad actor, but he's he's definitely in the star persona side of things rather than the uh, skilled trained actor. But at any rate, he kicks around, does uh, character roles for a, a good while, and then uh, just at the end of his TV series, he gets the role that sort of features him and lays the groundwork for him being a star. And that's Magnificent Seven. Yeah. And uh, that's directed by John Sturgis, who later also puts him in The Great Escape in 63. He also has a great featured role in The Dirty Dozen. 
But the, the greatest Charles Bronson film of all time, of course, is Once Upon a Time in the West, Sergio Leone's uh, film in which he is finally elevated to the status of lead and uh, cleverly not given very many lines. Mm -hmm. uh, he's this strong, very silent type in that one. And uh, at that point, he becomes a big uh, star in Europe. And that's also something that doesn't happen anymore because Europe doesn't have a big commercial film industry that is making stuff that competes with Hollywood. Uh, they're making more sort of art house films or specialty films, but there's all sorts of genre film from uh, France and uh, uh, Italy and uh, people can become bigger stars there than they are here. And that happens with uh, Bronson. If you want to see him at his Bronsoniest, there's a film that I admit that I jumped out of halfway through called Farewell Friend. And that's the one that made him a giant star in uh, Europe. It's him and Alain Delon as uh, sort of mismatched promising. <laughs> yeah, fr frenemies uh, who get involved in a bank heist. And I, uh, and it's got this sort of weird, interesting, almost sort of surreal mod quality to it. But Delon is acting in English, which is a problem. Bronson is acting in English. <laughs> also a problem. <laughs> also a problem. But it's, he is sort of, when he's not playing the Death Wish character, this is his star persona. It's, he's sort of, he's a weird and smug and sort of tongue in cheek, but cocky and thinks he has a chance with the women. And it's just a, a very odd pairing. And then I got an hour in and it's like, oh no, the next hour they're trapped together in a bank vault. And yeah. I was, <laughs> you said you can't be trapped in a bank vault with these two guys. Yes. All, all of the interesting things that I liked about the first half are not going to be in the second half. And so, and basically a great rule of thumb is if Alain Delon is acting in English, give it a pass. Right. But at any rate, he makes a bunch of other films in Europe. And then uh, we sort of think now that, oh, yeah, Charles Bronson really became a giant star with Death Wish. But that's almost his last hit. It's his biggest hit. But he makes uh, stuff like The Mechanic and Mr. Majestic. There's a whole bunch of sort of gritty American new wave crime films that he's in that, that do very well. Um, he's in Hard Times, uh, which is Walter Hill's first film, uh, possibly his last really uh, good film. And then uh, in the 80s, he takes a giant paycheck to go and work with Canon Films, who just churn out sequel Eight million after sequel movies. <laughs> to Death Wish uh, that nobody cares about. Right. And uh, he's with us until 2003, but he would definitely be my choice of he meets all the qualities of a, a movie star, including the very distinctive persona. But that persona uh, in retrospect is just wow. <laughs> yep. Uh, that's that's just very specific. It's a tough guy, but it's just I think, you know, even more than, you know, Lee Marvin, who is another mug who became a big star or to a lesser extent, James Coburn. Uh, in that same era, Bronson is just, I think, an odd bird whenever you see him uh, on on screen, except in a few key uh, roles where he is basically all of his Bronsonness, except for being a tough guy, is yep. is uh, whittled away in a Death Wish or a Once Upon a Time in, in the West. And um, in fairness, directors who worked with Bronson had nothing but good things to say about him. I mean, Sergio Leone said he was like the best actor he ever worked with. Other directors, basically, they may not have said, you know, oh, thank God it's a privilege to watch him act. But they said the camera, it's it's insanely easy to shoot him as the center of a scene because he's so interesting and the camera like is drawn to him in that way, in that visual way. And, you know, you understand why the camera is drawn to 
you know, uh, Richard Burton, obviously, because he's amazingly handsome, or even um, uh, Humphrey Bogart, because there's that sort of pathos. But the notion that the camera is drawn to Charles Bronson is it's it's almost like the camera and Charles Bronson are teaming up to fight the guy that made Charles Bronson mad. There, there's, there's sort of a weird and I don't want to say underdog because his character is, is usually cast as sort of an underdog. But I mean, he's Charles Bronson. So, you he's, know he's, he's gonna, all, oh, just as often the smartest, toughest guy in the room. Yeah. But he has that sort of I earned this and by God, no one's taking it away from me sort of quality. And I think the camera kind of responds a little bit to that. Like you say, he grew up, you know rough on the streets he had he does not come from a place of of privilege either you know in personal background or in actorly you know niceties and i think that you know the camera sort of responds to that what what he's putting out there is you know i've gotten here and i'm gonna grab onto it and and not let it go i think that there's a there's a quality well i mean again and again it's hard to say you know, oh, you know, Charles Bronson is like the, the the male Meryl Streep. That's that's not the case. And I don't even think that once upon a time in the West, you feel as even as, as big a connection to Bronson as you do to Eastwood in the Man with No Name films. A role, by the way, that Bronson turned down. It, it's really Henry Fonda that steals yeah, exactly. that film as the antagonist. It, it's very much where you are invested and interested in uh, sympathetic is the wrong word, but super tied up in Henry Fonda and. Charles Bronson is like the the landslide or the earthquake that's going to, you know, mess up Henry Fonda's face. And you're super there for it because Henry Fonda is awful. But the degree of, of sort of sympathy that he projects is not uh, is not present. It's, it's a, it, it is a weird choice. Um, but, you know, again, he, he hit in a, an ecosystem when there was just a, a real demand, I think, by, you know, uh, war veterans, mostly to see a, a, a figure of masculinity that looked like someone they might have, you know, served with uh, or, or or worked with. And so... And, and also the 70s was an era of weird-looking dudes yeah. becoming movie stars. Gene Hackman, Elliot Gould, Donald right. Sutherland. Shelley Duvall on the on the lady, on the distaff side. It, uh, again, uh, an attractive woman, but not conventionally Hollywood movie starlet quality attractive. Yes, the... Uh, and even Hoffman and Pacino, right? That they yeah. are. Dustin uh, Hoffman is is easily the goofiest looking major movie star in the last you know quarter century. Right, and so it's an era where it was sort of like everyday Joes as the leading actors, and then often sort of uh, willowy, wispy women. Like you're not going to think of Candace Bergen this way now after her later roles, but uh, she was sort of the kind of a, a Breck girl onto which uh, people projected things or Catherine Ross or uh, the Gene Seberg again, classically yeah, as feminism came on the uh, idealized women on screen receded and the, and the weird normal guys uh, took over cinema for a while. Uh, now, of course the star main star making vehicle and the uh, purpose of star power is to put people in Marvel movies and things like Marvel movies. And so we're getting very, in various ways, very conventional seeming uh, leading men, uh, not without charisma, but with the possible exception of Robert Downey Jr. as the sort of improbable early star, you know, the, all of the Chris's mm -hmm. and uh, Benedict Cumberbatch's, are, they're sort of almost more like sort of classically center point uh, movie stars yeah. uh, than even uh, was the case in, in the 30s and 40s when you had people like Bogart and Cagney. Yeah, Henry Cavill, for example, is someone whose career, I think, just is entirely dependent on the fact that he looks like he was drawn by a cartoonist in the 1940s. 
He's got like an almost ridiculously square jaw and symmetrical face. And as far as anyone can tell, nothing else going on. And there he is playing Superman and being in, in big movies. He's Sherlock Holmes on Netflix in a little bit, which will, if he carries it off, I will have much nicer things to say about Henry Cavill. But I, I somehow don't believe I'm going to believe he's the smartest person in Europe when I watch right. it. And uh, <laughs> occupying the Bronson niche now uh, is Liam Neeson, uh, which is, but it's not weird to go, oh, Le- Liam Neeson is having a, a late career surge as a basically being the Charles Bronson of today. You don't look at that and go, what? Why do people, why are people interested in Liam Neeson? It's perfectly evident. Right. And, and also Liam Neeson, while he is no Tom Cruise, is also no Charles Bronson. I mean, he's, he's a conventionally handsome person. He's just not gorgeous like a movie star is, but he yes. doesn't look like he was thrown downstairs before he came to work that day. No, he's just uh, becoming an action star later in his career the way that yeah. Bronson. Yeah. And that's just a weird thing for a 60 year old to have happen in the way that Bronson you know, blows up with Death Wish at 50. But again, Liam Neeson, like Charles Bronson, was in a bunch of ensemble pieces before then. Yeah. And uh, if we were going to keep going in this segment, we could get on to how I think the next Liam Neeson is Charlize Theron. Yeah. But we got to get out of here and start up another segment, Ken. If, if only we could hang around in a darkened room with Charlize Theron. But there we are. Off to the next hut. The Best of Asphagel is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on DriveThru. Avoid having to take revenge for the death of this podcast by joining such alert Patreon backers as Paul and Cleo Bushland, Ben Vincent, Chad Ward, Dan Simons, and Neil Dalton. Ah, the clatter of pots and pans, the delicious smells wafting uh, from under the range hood. Tell us that once more we're entering the food. Oh, we're, we're not allowed to take food here, Robin. They were in a book part of the food hut. It's like the only time a book hut is, is unwelcome is when it prevents us from eating our food. But we can at least read about food. And that is the topic of today's uh, food hut is the food book hut. And uh, Robin established the ground rules early that this is not about cookbooks. I forget if we've done a cookbook hut, but we're not doing it now. This is things about food that will make you so hungry you go find a cookbook and cook. Right. And, right. and some of these do verge on cookbook territory because yeah, it's, it's commonplace these days for uh, books that are substantially text about food to be have recipes interspersed 
between them, mm-hmm. but uh, none of these are cookbooks per se, or at least the ones that I picked, I didn't pick because they were a cookbook. So I guess we should alternate our choices. Sure. And I'm going to start uh, with one that uh, has special cachet for me, uh, Jeffrey Steingarten's uh, The Man Who Ate Everything, and then uh, this follow-up book, It Must Be Something I Ate. Uh, he is now off in the world of food contest television, but for many years was the food uh, writer for Vogue. And uh, these are collections of his Vogue pieces in which he delves into the uh, history, usually, of a particular ingredient, also does a cooking experiment with it, tries to make something happen in his well-equipped home kitchen, and then writes about both of those things uh, in an erudite, uh, journalistic way. Uh, And these are really great, even if they you didn't learn about them because uh, Jack Vance recommended them to you when you called him to talk about the Dying Earth role-playing game. Wow, that is pretty good. I learned about them because my friend Josh gave the man who ate everything to me. I think for Christmas one year and uh, it's terrific. It's, it's, it's lovely, intelligent, incisive food writing, and there's nothing wrong with that. I think my first choice may have been something that I've plugged on the food book hut before, but I'm going to plug it again because it is so worthwhile. The flavor Bible by Karen page and Andrew Dornenberg, not the Karen page you're thinking of a different Karen page. Uh, This is sort of skating the boundary of cookbook. There are no recipes in it. All it is is a list of ingredients and what goes with those ingredients. So it's the raw materials of a cookbook, but it's not a cookbook. And it was assembled kind of like 17th century zoologists in that Page and Dornenberg went to a bunch of chefs and said, what do you think goes with shallots? And the chefs listed them off and where all the chefs listed the same thing, they put it in bold face and where some of the chefs list something, they put it in italics and where only one chef says something they say, I don't know. Maybe it does go with orange. I'm not the expert. I'm not the chef. And they put it in. And what it provides you is a vocabulary for cooking as opposed to an incentive to start cooking like uh, Steingarten's uh, books or recipes for cooking. So it's sort of that middle step where you're building that uh, knowledge base uh, that you need to be able to sort of riff on things in the kitchen. Lots of food books are written by people who uh, cook. Uh, or run restaurants, or they're journalists who profile those people. But no one writes about the experience of being hungry and wanting food and being a diner uh, like the great multi-talented writer Calvin Trillin. Uh, You can find all of his food writing gathered together now in a a book called The Tummy Trilogy, which collects his books American Fried, Alice Let's Eat, and Third Helpings. And his journalism on uh, barbecue, uh, for example, uh, although this will all be kind of dated now, is something that really lays out the territory in a great way. And uh, he just uh, has a, a splendid way of uh, laying out the sensation of wanting to eat a great meal in uh, prose form. Calvin Trillin is a magical writer. He's so good. This is one of the books that uh, Sheila introduced me to very early on in our relationship. And it only took me a decade to figure out that what she actually was saying was start cooking for me, you lazy, useless husband. But <laughs> they're, they're so good. Uh, she stumbled on him back in her days of left student activism because he used to be a columnist for the nation 
uh, writing for, as he calls him, the wily and parsimonious Victor Navasky, uh, in which much of his prose was involved in making fun of the nation and Victor Navasky, and the rest was grumbling about how no one talks about food correctly. My favorite of all of the Trillin essays, and it's a hard choice, is the one where he flies third class on a plane, which is what everyone flies now, and he takes the difference between his first class ticket that he could have bought and the economy ticket that he did buy and buys food with it. And it's how much ridiculous food he has to buy to make up the difference between coach and first class. And it's, first of all, it's a beautiful essay on class. Second of all, it's a hilarious, you know, sort of observed comedy piece. Third of all, it will make you very, very hungry, which is the job of all great food writing. So that's my favorite, but Trillin, Trillin is amazing. And, um, much like a, you know, potato chips, I, I dare you to read just one. They're, they're super good. Uh, I think that if we don't say these, uh, we're going to get yelled at. So I will briefly mention On Food and Cooking by Harold McGee, which is a big sciency book about uh, what happens when you cook. I personally, as a humanities cooker, have never quite pounded my head through it, although I've dived in and out of it as a reference. Um, if you're going to read one of those books, I prefer Hervé Thies. Uh, which is Kitchen Mysteries. It's more recent. It's uh, French as opposed to an American. So I think it, there's a little more aesthetic involvement. One of the mysteries is where do I get this ingredient? Exactly. But that's that's part of the fun. Uh, and it's much, much shorter uh, than On Food and Cooking. On Food and Cooking is uh, very much cooking for engineers. And uh, Hervé Thies's Kitchen Mysteries is allow me to light a cigarette and tell you uh, in a superior snotty French voice uh, why it is you've done this all your life. And uh, of the two, I prefer Thies, but I don't think either of them are necessarily as indispensable as people maintain, although you obviously need to know things like what is the Maillard effect and whatever else. But uh, if, you, if you want one of them, I recommend Hervé Thies Kitchen Mysteries. Robin, are you a McGee-ologist or a McGee-cultist? I should delve into those now that I'm trapped in my home with some ingredients. Yep. Next on my list is uh, we need some Toronto content, and uh, this one I think is interesting for its perspective. Uh, it's a very confessional book, and it's by Jen Ag, A-G-G. It's called I Hear She's a Real Bitch. Uh, Jen Ag is uh, a serial restaurant creator here in Toronto, uh, best known for a now-defunct uh, charcuterie place called The Black Hoof, which kicked off the charcuterie uh, renaissance here in the city. And she's got a bunch of other uh, places. And the uh, fascinating thing about this is, in, in addition to herself as a memoirist, is that she is a restaurant owner and creator, but not herself a chef. And that uh, is an interesting perspective because she focuses so much on the overall ambiance, the front of house, how that needs to work, and in fact winds up uh, clashing uh, with some egotistical chef bros uh, along the way, and I think is a a, a really interesting look at the business and art and performance of the restaurant. I obviously, I don't have that. I think in terms of restaurant, restaurateur memoirs, the only one that I have is Hot Doug's The Book, which was written by Doug Sohn, the uh, impresario behind Chicago's and therefore the world's greatest encased meat emporium. But I don't know that if you'd never gone to Hot Doug's, you would care. And I think that it sort of falls on the essential food list that way. I mean, you should care, but I don't, I just don't think that the, the writing is what grabs you. It, it's more the memory of I've been there. So rather than uh, go down into the specific, I will leap to the general and recommend if you're buying one food reference, 
to buy the Oxford Companion to Food by Alan Davidson. In one book, uh, it answers virtually every question that you might have about um, why did we do that and what is this weird ingredient and what's going on. It's an encyclopedia that is mostly the creation of one mind, which makes it maybe not quite uh, Wikipedia in breadth, but makes up for it in uh, ability to interplay. Uh, it, it's, 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 a, it's a fine looking book. And it uh, just, if you're curious about, did we ever eat zebra? There you go. We'll find out in the Oxford Companion to Food. So it, it sort of um, opens up a lot of doors and then invites you to go through them at your own speed. And it's a great reference book. So I recommend it. Another restaurant book, uh, this one, a New York restaurant, uh, and it's written by a journalist rather than someone involved uh, with the restaurant. It's called At Balthazar by Reggie Nadelson. And it basically is a top to bottom survey of everything that goes on in a uh higher end bistro in New York that it becomes very popular with the celebrities. And it's, so it's everything again, from the business to the decor, to each uh, department of, uh, of food prep from the pastry to the meats, everything uh, is covered. And it's a great sort of uh, uh, look inside the uh, institution of a, of a great restaurant. And again, I think very informative if you are a, a diner to get a sense of, uh, what's going on behind the scenes to uh, make that experience that you saved up your money for. Right. I will go and sort of cheat a bit, a bit because I already did sort of what is going on with food, but I, I have to recommend the book salt, fat, acid, heat by Samin Nosrat. It became a Netflix show. If people uh, watched that, I think Robin and I both enjoyed that a good deal. Uh, this is the book version of that. Uh, so it goes into more detail uh, it has lots of sort of actionable, how long should you salt meat for type questions and tables. It, it takes basically McGee and Tease and breaks them down even further into these four basic components of cooking. And uh, Sami Nosrat's generally superb advice about how to deal with it. So it's not just a, a what and a why, it's also a how and a when. And uh, it's beautifully illustrated with uh, fun cartoons. So that's nice. And it's... Uh, it, it, it's a it's a joyful book to read, and I think when you come away from it, you'll feel more confident about using those four ingredients slash techniques slash elements. You, you won't be like nervous around salt or or fire or lemons or uh, olive oil, uh, and so your food will have more flavor because all of those things, guess what, provide flavor to the food as opposed to just calories and and blocks. Uh, Robin. I'm going to skip down my list a bit then since you're still mentioning actionable food books mm -hmm. and go to Chez Panisse Vegetables by Alice Waters. Oh, thank God. Um, she is the beginning of sort of the, the local slow food uh, movement in with her California restaurant. Her memoir is also really interesting and I think gives you a uh, sort of a surprising look at how improvised the whole thing was and how little she knew about what she was doing when she went into it. But this is, if you want to learn about every single vegetable and then get a suggestion about what to do with it, uh, is, uh, I think, uh, is my favorite, best written, most informative sort of ingredient-based book. Uh, sometimes Waters uh, will, her perspective is, well, go to the farm in California that makes this on the week that it's at its best. And then you don't need to do anything with it, but you can still learn a lot about the vegetables that you can get in your local uh, produce shop and turn into uh, food. Now that you've gotten to Alice waters, uh, I can uh, uncork uh, the book I was waiting for waiting to uncork, which is the book where I learned about Alice waters, a book called the United States of Arugula 
by David Camp, which is not a great book, I think, by any stretch of the imagination, but it is uh, breezy, it is fun, and it gives you a good overview of how America went from meat and potatoes and not too much heat on either to being fancy. And it's uh, the history of basically how American cuisine turned around, turned a corner. It's a little bit oversimplified because the gourmand arts in the 1890s were uh, pretty spectacular, but uh, there is absolutely no doubt that the American home table uh, took a big change in the 1970s and since, and uh, Camp's book uh, sort of explores that and talks about some of the macro issues about shipping and, and, and food storage and some of the micro issues like individual chefs like uh, Alice Waters. So if you, again, if you're looking for a, a an overview that will uh, leave you hungry and is not actively anger making with the pros, United States of Arugula, a good book on that. A book I really enjoyed and a great example of sort of pairing food with life is The Sweet Life in Paris by David Leibovitz. He is a pastry chef, and he writes about moving to Paris and being a pastry chef there, and half of it is about pastries, and the other half uh, could be subtitled Robin, You Could Never Live in Paris. Even if you spoke <laughs> French, Robin, you could never live in Paris, because everything that drives David Leibovitz crazy about the uh, particular uh, bureaucracy and impossibility of just everyday life and effectuating things uh, would drive me four times as uh, crazy. So it's uh, uh, fun and, and delicious and makes you uh, want a, uh, a pastry. And if you're lucky, you will live near a place that can make one as well as David Leibovitz seems to be able to. I think my favorite of those sorts of books is Peter Mayle's uh, memoir, A Year in Provence, which very much made me think, oh, Ken, you could live in Provence. It's just about <laughs> sitting around and being a writer and eating all the time. Uh, I suspect there's a little more to that. <laughs> whether they would let you in. Right, whether they would let me in. I think they would let me in. I think the Provencal people are historically welcoming uh, and lovely. That was my experience. But I think that's the book that, uh, and a lot of uh, travel memoirs turn into food memoirs and vice versa. Um, but I think that my version of that is A Year in Provence. And Mail is just a terrific writer uh, as well, uh, just over and above the rest of it. But yeah, if you want to... Um, uh, Talk yourself into more olive oil. A year in Provence is a great way to do that. And uh, I'm going to drop one from my list because we're running over time. But I will. Well, first of all, one of us should mention Anthony Bourdain's Kitchen Confidential. It's the food book everyone has already heard of. And therefore, the one that if we don't mention it, people will say, why didn't you mention it? And <laughs> it's uh, there's a reason why everyone's heard of it. Yeah. Uh, having said that, uh, the last one I'll recommend is uh, the most Cartesian of them, uh, which is Patrick E. McGovern's Uncorking the Past, which is Archaeology and Beer. Uh, it is the uh, the history of uh, uh, beer in particular, but other fermented uh, beverages as well. And uh, McGovern uh, goes so far as to attempt to recreate uh, original recipes. And if you're in the area where you can buy a dog's head, which I am not, uh, you can sometimes buy some of his special uh, historical recreation uh, brews. So it's a great uh, mix of uh, ancient history and uh, and having a beer. This last one, is, I lied when I said that Alan Davidson's Encyclopedia or Oxford Companion to Food is the only companion to food you need. It is. But the one you want is Alexander Dumas' Dictionary of Cuisine, which is mostly Alexander Dumas bragging about how great Alexander Dumas is while pretending to give the definition of salad. And in uh, the definition of salad, he also says that people who dress the salad not at the table should be excluded, not just from polite company, 
but from France. They should just be thrown out of the country because they're terrible people. It's full of crazy opinions or well-founded opinions expressed yeah, crazily. That first one, that, that's a well-founded opinion. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's not wrong. The thing I always say is that almost all salads are overdressed. And if it's done, done at the table, you can go, whoa there, partner. As you would say in France. Yes. Well, Dumas, Dumas salads are a, are, are a thing of beauty and a joy forever. And the, the theoretically encyclopedia is full of anecdotes from Dumas life of roistering and good food and, uh, well worth it. Uh, there is a very, very long uh, version that uh, obviously was written in the 1850s. So it's in public domain. You can find uh, a very, very long. Uh, versions of English translations of it online, uh, but there are a couple of good abridgments that you can get as well. So Dumas, uh, bragging about Dumas and incidentally talking about uh, food is, is a pretty good read. So I would recommend that. Well, I think before I get any hungrier and just stop this podcast altogether, uh, we'd better get out of this uh, hut and uh, and romp on over to our uh, final, perhaps somewhat larcenous hut. Suit up, agents of Delta Green. Your battle to save humanity from unnatural horrors is going beyond the Beltway. With Delta Green the Labyrinth now shipping in beautiful and weaponizable hardcover to a secure dead drop near you. Written by Delta Green co-creator John Scott Tynes, this all-new collection of organizations dives deep into the fissures of America in the new millennium. From the loathsome servitors of the 1%, to the hard-scrabble faithful of the Rust Belt, from the abusive warrens of the Internet, to the lonely chambers of every human heart, from the toxic legacy of the Cold War, to the doomed idealists trapped in a world they cannot save. American life has entered a labyrinth of twisty, turny passages. And while there are many ways in, there is no way out. Unless knowledge is a way out. In which case, find Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green the Labyrinth at your game purveyor of choice. Disclaimer, knowledge is not a way out. The stovepipe hats and the old-timey cars, the uh, horses clopping around, and uh, the lack of good cell phone reception tell us that we're once again in the History Hut. And this time around, we are here to uh, satisfy the demands, nay, the commands, of beloved Patreon backer Pedro Garcia, who wants to know about the time that uh, Andorra, that tiny European nation, had a king, or did it, for 13 days. And can that king, and uh, could be king in scare quotes, uh, was Boris Skosarev. Uh He was born in uh, 1896. Uh, he died relatively recently in 1989. But uh, the 13 days in question take place between uh, July 6th and July 14th in 1934. And uh, Skosarev, I think it's safe to say, is the sort of person for whom the standard cliché Checkered career was invented. Oh, yeah. Boris Gosireff. And again, as, as we have learned on this uh, podcast, everyone was a spy. Uh, Boris Gosireff, I think, enters the historical record, and I may be using that term a little loosely, while working for the British Foreign Office. He... Uh, is born uh, in Lithuania. This is a big co- podcast for Lithuanians. It is a big podcast for Lithuania. He arrives 
in England, serves with the Royal Naval Air Service Armored Car Unit. Uh, and if you are balking at that, uh, welcome to the British Navy, uh, which also balked at that. And so the armored cars were sent to Russia, and he claims to have served with them. However he did it, he got back into England after the Russian Revolution. He was opposed to that, claiming to be a baron. I don't want to say there's no reason to doubt that he was a baron, except for everything he did after he got to England. But many barons came out of the Baltic states and then... Uh, exploded dramatically. So what, what can we say? He was part of a mission to uh, Siberia. He was the British government liaison with the Japanese mission to Siberia because he had a gift for languages. He went to America. Uh, this is all probably in the service of the British uh, attempt to overthrow uh, the Bolshevik revolution, the counter-revolutionary wars in 1919. At the end of that, they sort of said, thanks for your help. And uh, he left the service uh, in 1925. He moved to the Netherlands claims to have uh, worked for the crown and be made Count of Orange. Those are lies. He was, Why in fact... Why would you lie about a thing like that? He seems like such a nice Why fellow. would you lie about a thing like that? He was, in fact, uh, listed by the Dutch Intelligence Service as an international swindler. And uh, now we begin to get to the possible reasons that he left the uh, British intelligence. Kiting checks is one of them, engaged in uh, various uh, sort of long cons over uh, rings and jewelry. Because there's always a point when a, when a local swindler has to become an international swindler. Right, exactly. And it's the point where you start kiting checks while collecting a British uh, government check. Uh, anyway, he um, uh, at one point went to Colombia to establish an import-export office, as you do. And he also began roughly this time discovering that he had the capacity to make himself attractive to rich women, uh, which is a skill uh valuable in the 1920s and 30s as well as it is today and so it's he, core to the swindle skill set exactly he um uh began taking up with a american um uh, millionaire s uh she was uh, the divorced wife of a millionaire had a good deal of money settled on her also began courting other women in society and at some point uh stumbled on the existence of the tiny principality of andorra uh, which at that time, as it is now, is co-governed by a Spanish bishop, the Bishop of Urgell, and the guy who is in charge of France, who at that time was the president of France, because it used to be an appanage of the Duchy of Foix, which had descended on the King of France. And therefore, from that point, Napoleon sort of, you know, claimed the title uh, co-prince of Andorra when he was sweeping up all the things that the French government owned. Yes. Thereby later annoying every other head of France who exactly. has to think about Andorra. Exactly. And one of the people that Skosirev cozied up to was the pretender to the king of uh, the throne of France, uh, the Orleanist pretender. There are two others, uh, the Bourbonist pretender and the Napoleonic pretender, neither of which uh, Skosirev, uh, he headed for the Orleanists who descend from Louis-Philippe. Right. And, and those are shady characters in the 1890s. I, I shudder to think who they are in the 30s. Right. Well, they are borderline fascists in the 30s, in case you're curious. Uh, uh, I was implying that, yeah, but go on. Right. So anyway, uh, he cozies up and either gets deputized or claims to have gotten deputized by Jean Dorlan uh, to be ruler of Andorra in the name of the French king. And he shows up in Andorra and he submits his proposed constitution uh, to Andorra, and uh, he says, we should have freedom of religion, we should have freedom of speech, we should have all the modern constitutional values, 
And, uh, oh, also we should have total bank secrecy laws and build a casino. And at that point, according to some real historians, the governing council of Andorra said, this sounds great. We love the part where we can rake off a casino. And they voted to make him king. And one counselor held out uh, and went to the Bishop of Urquell and tattled. And, and one wonders if the Bishop of Urquell would ever have noticed, but... <laughs> he was like, Andorra? Andorra? What? I mean, when the guy doesn't bring him his sheep's head or whatever the medieval um, uh, rent was, uh, he might have, you know, asked someone to, where did that sheep's head go? We used to get one. But anyway, he did not want a casino built in the Pyrenees Mountains because that was the it doorway to bishop hell. bishop right in his job title. And so he tattled to the Spanish government. And uh, Andorra had, in fairness, was rife for revolution or as rife for revolution as Andorra ever can be because... They'd called a bunch of votes during uh, harvest and lambing season, and people hated to come down to the town center and vote, and they were mad at that. And uh, the French government had sent people in and out of Andorra to arrest other international criminals, and they were mad at that. And so the Andorans were were spoiling for a change, is, is why Boris was, in fact, if he was, in fact, voted king, was voted king. But the Spanish said, well, we're not going to tolerate this nonsense, and sent uh, two cops and a and a sergeant to arrest Boris Gosairev. King Boris the first claimed to have five hundred men, none of them mercenaries, in a perhaps unnecessary addendum. But he did not, in <laughs> fact, have any men, or at least none that were there at the time. And Gosairev is clapped in Spanish prison for being a jerk, and eventually uh, is bounced around various countries because. Uh, the French basically invalidate his, what was called a Nansen passport, which was a passport that was given to people from countries that don't exist anymore. The French invalidated his Nansen passport and the Portuguese government took a bribe to give him a passport and then untook the bribe when it implied that he was going to live in Portugal. He said, no, we, we'll give you a Portuguese passport, but you can't stay in <laughs> Portugal. And so they threw him out and he went to France and the French took a little while to find him and they, you know, so he, he basically goes from jail to jail to jail, leaving on appeal and then vanishing and then being recaptured. So World War II finds him in an internment camp where they are also keeping refugees from the Spanish Civil War and refugees from Mussolini's Italy. So it's a it's not a concentration camp. It's a place they're keeping aliens without papers while they figure out what to do with them. And he's in that camp until the south of France gets taken over by the Germans in 1942 and the Germans release him because why would you keep this guy in a, in a, in camp? If the French were holding him, he must be a good guy. He must be a good guy. And so he joins the Wehrmacht and serves as a, <laughs> as international swindlers do as you do. Um, and he serves on the East front, uh, as an interpreter, I assume, because he's getting pretty old for, uh, straight up fights at this point, but he's, uh, he's wandering around on the Eastern front and, in 1946, the French who are occupying Berlin say, isn't that Boris Kosyreff? And they grab him and put him back in prison. Uh, he stays in prison until his uh, wife, who he has found time to marry during his other adventures, summons him to the town of Bapard in West Germany, where she has bought a house. And so he goes to live with her and then somehow gets wandering feet and goes into East Germany and gets arrested by the East Germans in 1948 and sent to Siberia, no fooling. And he's in Siberia until 1956 when Khrushchev releases all the, <laughs> all the Andorran kings and other uh, people that uh, got put in Siberia for less than no reason. 
Um, not all of them, just most of them. And he goes back to Germany and stops misbehaving and lives in Germany and grows flowers for the last 30 years of his life. He dies in 1989, as you say, the best king Andorra ever had, I think. We can all agree. This is crying out, first of all, I think, for a modern comedy where the Bishop of Urkel is suddenly told that he needs to solve a dispute that has arisen in Andorra. Yeah, a very um, a mouse that roared sort of situation where people are busy looking at maps and saying, I own this? Yeah. Is this an EU country? But now, uh, as far as turning it in, into a game scenario material, it's almost too fun to have player characters show up and ruin it. <laughs> uh, but I guess he is the sort of character who, at any time from the teens uh, to the fifties or even past that, could be the wily character who has information, who knows, you know, the bit about the secret alien history of Andorra, or has the weapon that you need to go and uh, kill the vampire and you'll uh, exchange for a valid, uh, perhaps a Portuguese passport. He will supply them to you. They sort of uh, a louche, uh, but charming uh, person who, um, because they're an international swindler uh, knows more than the average bear. Yeah. Uh, you could certainly, you know, he's in the Pyrenees, so it's just a hop, skip and a jump to Rennes le Chateau, or you could find the Holy Grail. That could be the explanation for why Andorra, of all places, is still independent, is it's got some sort of artifact. Uh, the Horn of Roland, obviously, is lost somewhere in the Pyrenees. You got lots of possibilities of things that could have drifted into Andorra, or that Andorra would make a good base uh, to sneak into Civil War-era Spain and start looking for. And then also, if you're looking for a patron to send you to investigate this guy, um, how about Florence Marmon's ex-husband, Howard Carpenter Marmon, a uh, beloved builder of hedge mazes and uh, race cars. He basically founded uh, the Indianapolis 500 and uh, makes a fine person to send adventurers to find out who his ex-wife is hanging around with and what are these rumors that it's connected to the dubious cagots of uh, ancient medieval France who were obviously the the uh, deep ones of, of ancient medieval France or or possibly the Chochos. Who can say what they were? But uh, they were up to something. Right. And uh, perhaps our boy Skosiref has stumbled onto them with his uh, nose for trouble. Well, uh, just like the Templars, mention of the Kagets requires us to immediately end the podcast, especially when we've gone significantly over our usual time. Yeah. But we'll be back, we promise, uh, with perhaps no Kagets, perhaps no Lithuanians, but uh, more of this uh, exact kind of nonsense a mere week from today. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Asphagown. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music as always is by Jim Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Keep this podcast alive for at least 13 days by joining such sagacious backers as... Neil Kaplan. Liz and Siski. Adam Grotjan. Aaron Dumay and Patrick Joint. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Subtweet your group with our latest design. The players are the red herring. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin T. Laws. See you next time when once again, uh, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>